think many people find Christianity confusing and possibly for many different reasons. I think for some, the language of the church can be confusing. Things like, phrases like be born again, repent, trust in Jesus, etc. Some don't understand the point of the church. Why get up early on a weekend, go to a building and sing and listen to someone talk to us out of a book? Adding to this confusion is the fact that teaching often calls for us to make changes to our lives based upon what's been taught, what's been said out of the book. And the result of this confusion is many people feel the church is simply a waste of time. Why gather and study a book that was written thousands of years ago? What relevance could something like that have for our lives today? And so what I want to do today is take time and explain kind of why we do what we do uh, at a church. To do this, I want to focus on the central message of Christianity. And then I am going to call on you to respond to the message. Now, for some, what I'm going to explain is the central message of Christianity. It may surprise you because the central message of Christianity isn't be good. The central message of Christianity isn't do better. The central message of Christianity is don't do bad things. The central message of Christianity isn't try harder. In fact, the central message of Christianity isn't really anything we do. Rather, the central message of Christianity is a person, a person named Jesus. Jesus is the most important person who has ever lived. Now, that's a big statement. A lot of people have lived. A lot of people have done great things. How could I say Jesus is the most important person who has ever lived? Well, what I want to do today is kind of answer that question. Why is Jesus so important? In an effort to answer that question, we have to start in the book of Genesis. So before we start, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll dig in. Our Father, we love you today. You're great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. We do pray that you'd give us ears to hear what you have for us today. Father, help help us to listen to Holy Spirit when he speaks. Let your word be living and active and powerful in our lives. Let your word reveal Jesus to us so that we would all be drawn to him in one way or another. Lord, maybe some need to be drawn to Jesus for the very first time today to surrender their lives to him. Maybe others need to recommit their life to Christ. And maybe some need to just press in deeper. But Lord, whatever the need, we all need more of Jesus. We all need more of Holy Spirit. We all need more of you. So, Father, do that work in our lives today. Fill me with Holy Spirit so that I'd have clarity of thought and clarity of speech and I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. I don't want to be a hindrance in any way today. I don't want it to be about anything I try to do or anything like that, Lord. Let it be you that we hear today. Speak through the word. Let us respond in faith and be glorified in all that happens. We ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Now, the Bible starts in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. I, I like that. It carries with the idea, nothing existed until God determined things needed to exist. And then God began to make things exist. God began to, to create the world out of nothing. Verse 2, it says, The earth was formless and desolate, empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was very good. As God begins to create, we find this often repeated formula, God said, and there was. As God said there should be light, there was light. As God said there should be ground, there was ground. As God said there should be this, there was that. Then at the end, of after God saying he had done this, God said there should be, and then there was, then it would say, and God saw that it was good. So God creates the world, 
in six days and all throughout continues to say it is good until he gets to the very end of chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. As we look at the world around us, it's clear the world is not very good, is it? The news is not very good. What's happening in the world is not very good. So what happened? What happened to God's very good world to turn it into what kind of what we see and what we experience on the regular in the world we live in? Well, what happened is man sinned against God. And when man sinned against God, it corrupted God's very good creation. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. By the time we get to Genesis 3, God has created the whole world and everything in it. He's created a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. He has placed them in a paradise called the Garden of Eden. And they were to tend and keep the garden. Uh, in, In this paradise, all of their needs were met. They had food in abundance. They had a perfect relationship with one another. They had a near perfect relationship with God. They had a purpose for their lives to keep and tend the garden according to God's plan and according to God's will. They were allowed to eat freely of any tree in the garden except for one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And things went along well. And for a period of time, we don't know how long. But then somebody comes along who is kind of an interloper to bring chaos into God's very good creation. Genesis 3 and 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God really said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So there's the first way the enemy begins to attack these people who are devoted to God and who know God. Has, has God really said, are you, are you sure that's what God has said? He casts doubt on God's word. And, and from what we can see, that did begin to, to kind of work in her life. Maybe she wasn't sure for one reason or another, because she says in verse 2, from the, free, from, the trees, from the fruit of the trees in the garden we may eat, but the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said you shall not eat it or touch it or you will die. Only when you look at chapter 2, God didn't actually say not to touch it. Seems like she was not so sure God had really said. And so she tried to add to God's word to strengthen it, maybe to give her more confidence that, no, this is what we're to do. Satan, seeing that he's got a foothold here, and maybe she's got some doubts, he continues to press his advantage. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. So now he just flat contradicts God's word. God has said that they eat the fruit, they will die. And now the, the enemy, the interloper here, he says, you're not going to die. He contradicts God's word. And then, then he does what I think is his most efficient weapon of all in verse 5. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll become like God, knowing good and evil. He challenged God's character. See, God is keeping you from something good. This isn't God knows what's best. This isn't the one who created you knows what is the right way to live and what is the right thing to do. Instead, he's preventing you from experiencing your best life now. He is keeping you from all the fullness of pleasure and joy of life you should have. He begins to convince her that God's rules are a burden to be born and not something that is a blessing and a protection for her life. And it works. The woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight for the eyes and desirable to make one wise. She 
took some of its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. They believe Satan's lies, and they eat the fruit, and they disobey God. Now this disobedience, it has terrible consequences for, for them, and, and really for all of humanity. We, we see in verse 7 some of it. Then in verse 7 it says, The eyes of them were both open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made waist coverings. Now, they, they were naked and they were ashamed, which is significant because chapter 2 ends where they were naked and they were not ashamed. So shame entered the world because of sin. They began to try to cover up their own shame, to hide what they had done. So this sort of hidden life, secrecy about who we are and what we're like, it comes in because of sin. Then in verse 8, it says, now they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now they're hiding from God. Always before that God would come and they, they experienced this near perfect communion with God. Now for the very first time when God comes to walk among them, they run and they hide from God. Now this is a beautiful part of the story. Because God could have just let them hide. But instead, the Lord God called to the man. Where are you? God began a, a search and a rescue mission for them that continues to this day. And we'll talk more about that later. But just notice, they didn't come out of hiding to go to God. God went looking for them in their hiddenness. So God calls them on the carpet about what they've done. They, they eventually come out. And they said, we're in the garden where we heard you come and we're afraid because we're naked. God says, well, how did you how did you know you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree I told you not to eat of? Now, here's where we see another set of consequences for humanity that came. The man said to God, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate. So now they had this perfect relationship with one another. And now their relationship is severed. He passes the buck. Have you eaten of the fruit, Adam? But it, it's her fault. And, and really, you gave her to me. Right? This is, it was her. So then God says to her, What is this that you have done? And the woman gives the first explanation of the devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me. And I ate. And so she now begins to make excuses. So they begin to make excuses. They're not taking responsibility for the things they've done. And, and on and on, there's all manner of consequences came into the world. It wasn't just them. They aren't the only people who experience consequences in their life because sin entered the world. But, but we live in a world now that is broken and fractured because of this day. And sin has continued to abound. In, in the world in which we live, because of sin, the relationship between God and man has been severed. Humans were meant to have a love-based relationship with God. What it was like in the garden prior to the fall is the way it was intended to be. But now, that's gone. The relationship between husband and wife becomes one of blame and disunity. Why is it? Two people can love each other so much and still have such a hard time getting along with one another. Well, because sin has come into the world. Creation itself 
It's cursed. Verse 17 through 19. Adam, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of the wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall grow for you and shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to ground, because from, from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. <coughs> Creation itself was cursed. Thorns and thistles began to grow before in the garden. Everything just sort of produced itself sort of naturally, easily. Now it's hard to grow things. Now we have droughts. Now we have all of the manner of sort of the things in nature, the storms and the earthquakes and all of things along those lines are all because humanity sinned against God. People died spiritually. Humans are created in the image of God. And, and as such, we are created as body, soul and spirit. Body is what it sounds like. That's our body. Soul, sort of like our emotions and our will. The spirit is the part of us that can know God, and experience God, and love God, and rejoice with Him. That's the part of humanity that died when Adam and Eve sinned. But it wasn't just Adam and Eve who died spiritually. All of their children who were born were also born spiritually dead. You and I, we were born spiritually dead as well. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a second as well. Humanity or physical death entered the world from the dust they came, from the dust they shall return. Humans were not intended to die. They were meant to live in perpetual communion with God for all of eternity. But now death has entered the world and people suffer, get sick and they die. Humanity is born in rebellion against God. We, we know this just from the fact that probably within all of us there's something that says you ain't going to tell me what to do. Right, if, the, if it says, don't touch the wet paint, we're going to touch it to see if it's wet. Right? That's, that's that part of our nature. It's not only a rebellion against the, the sign that says, don't touch the wet paint, but that same rebellion is carried over into our, our relationship with God. Even God is not going to tell me what I can and cannot do. Humans are in a state of, uh, of being the children of wrath. Because of our sin and rebellion against God, we are... Under the, the wrath of God, there are consequences for our actions. We are naturally blinded by Satan to our need for Jesus. The, the reason Jesus could live and die and rise from the dead and so many people not be burdened or see a need for that even after hearing it is because Satan blinds their minds. The entire world is under the sway of the devil. Because I think that's again one of those things we, we can see. The evil in the world is because there is an evil spiritual power controlling the way the world goes. Humanity struggles against evil spiritual forces. Satan roams the earth freely seeking someone to destroy. All of those things and much, much more. In short, what happened on this day is God's original purpose for earth and humanity was short-circuited. It was broken. The earth, the people of the earth were no longer very good. This began a horrendous cycle of sin, pain, disease, injustice, corruption, poverty, suffering, ruin, confusion, loss, and death. It began here when you read Genesis from the next few chapters, you just see the cycle go over and over and over again. When you read through the Old Testament, you see the cycle repeated over and over and over again. But we don't need to, to read the Bible to see this cycle. We can just look at the news. And the news reveals a cycle repeating over and over and over again. Everything wrong in our world is wrong because sin entered the world. Everything broken in our world is broken because sin 
entered the world. Now, again, God could have left us in that condition. God would have been just to do so. But God had better plans for us. He came seeking Adam in verse 9. And I, I love it. I mean, this should be something that's powerfully encouraging to all of us. Adam and Eve knew God far better than any of us do. They experienced Him in ways I don't think we can fully understand. And yet, even they rebelled against God. You'd think that's a high-level rebellion, right? I mean, that's like God's done with them, start over with somebody else. But instead, what God does is He seeks them. He goes looking for them because He loves them. God seeks to set about and restore the relationship with them that they had initially. It would be different now, but they could still have a relationship with Him. God does that with us as well. We've rebelled against God. We've sinned against God. We have done things we should not have done. But God seeks us. God looks for us. God is crying for us to come to Him. And in the midst of all of this, God gives a promise. Verse 16. Verse 15. And I will make enemies of you and the woman. He's speaking to the, this, the interloper, the serpent, the devil. I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God says there's going to be a time where an offspring of the woman is going to come. And this, this person is going to deal a death blow to you. He is going to crush your head and set right everything that went wrong. And in the process of crushing your head, you are going to bruise his heel. But in the end, he is going to win. He will restore and reconcile God's original plans for creation and humanity. Now, the Old Testament saints, they didn't really fully understand what it meant. They grasped that this was a promise of a Messiah to come. But they didn't know everything there was to know about it. They just knew at some point it was going to happen. From this point on, God's word begins to tell us both about the people God chose to bring the Messiah through. We're not going to turn to Genesis 12, but if we looked at Genesis 12, we would see God choose Abraham and set apart a people that would eventually become the, the nation of Israel. Now, the point of the nation of Israel wasn't the nation of Israel. The point of the nation of Israel was the Messiah who would come through them. And as the Old Testament tells us about these people, God has chosen to bring his Messiah uh, through it also begins to give us pictures of what this Savior, this Messiah, would be like. We would, if we had time, we could look at Isaiah 7:14 and see he would be born of a virgin. Micah 5:2, he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 35:5 and 6, he would have a ministry of miracles. Isaiah 49 and 6, he would draw all people to God. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, he would establish a new covenant between God and man. Isaiah 53, he would suffer, bleed, and die. Psalm 16 and Psalm 49, 15, he would rise from the dead. Psalm 68, 18, he would ascend to heaven. These prophetic pictures of the Savior, of the Messiah, they continued all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the, the thousands of years of that time, until God determined the fullness of time had come, and it was now time for his Savior, his Messiah, to come into the world. Turn with me to Matthew 1. Page 733 if you have a pew Bible. Matthew 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. So Matthew is introducing us 
to Jesus the Messiah. He is introducing us to the one that the world has waited on. Now Matthew's account has a, a, a common theme running through it. Very often the Gospel of Matthew will say something like, this was done that it might be fulfilled. And what Matthew is doing is intentionally showing how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. He was showing how that when Jesus came into being, that this, that what he did here or what he did there, how he acted in this way, that it was a fulfillment of the Old Testament promise showing Jesus to be the Messiah. He was the one that the Jewish people had been waiting on for thousands of years. But more than that, he was the one that the entire world, all of history, was essentially building until the birth of Jesus. So he goes on. The birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, since he was a righteous man, did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now, all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son. They shall name him Emmanuel, which, being translated, means God with us. Now, two foundational truths about Jesus in this passage. One, he is God. The Messiah who would come was not just a guy. He wasn't just a person. He wasn't a good guy. He wasn't a miracle worker. He wasn't merely a prophet or anything like that. He, He was God. We see this in verse 23. That he would... He would be called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Jesus came to show us that God is not just the God who is up there, but he is the God who is down here at work in us and through us and for us. He is the God who is with us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the coming of Christ into the world. The second foundational truth about Jesus we learn in this is he came for a purpose. He came to save people from their sins in verse 21. Now, when we begin to say Jesus came to save people from their sins, the question arises. Four, I think, question arises. One is, what is sin? Well, one of the consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience is every person born after them was born separated from God with a nature inclined to sin. Not only do we have a, a natural inclination to sin, but we have all actually sinned. We have acted on this inclination. God has said, do this, and and we have at all various times said, I'm just not going to. God has said, don't do that, and we have said, I I absolutely am. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Well, that that brings up kind of the same idea. What what is sin? What what is this standard that I have supposedly broken? I mean, I, I don't necessarily feel like I've sinned. I'm not perfect. But sinned against God? I don't think so. So what is sin? To understand sin, we have to understand God's standard of righteousness. Um, That's how we understand sin. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Lawlessness or sin is lawlessness. The basic idea of sin is just breaking God's law. God's law, as it's meant here, would be the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 make up God's Perfect standard of righteousness. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship with other people. If we had time, we could trace out how every command in the Old Testament or the New Testament in one way or another connects back 
to one of the first four or one of the last six. That's God's absolute standard of righteousness for all time. Now, the law pass, or it grades on a pass or a fail scale. Right? The law is about either you've done it all or you failed it all. Right? You either get a zero or a hundred. Ninety percent doesn't count. Ninety percent doesn't pass. Uh, but to have kept the law, it's not a matter of I had a really good day. Today was a good day and I kept all ten perfectly. Rather, to have kept the law, I had to have kept all ten every moment of every day of my life from the time I was born until the time I die. And at no point can I ever fall short of that standard in any way. If I do, I've sinned and I'm guilty. Now, that can sound maybe easy enough until we really begin to look at the law. Let me just look at one. We don't have time to look at all of them this morning. Show have no other gods before me. Now, a cursory examination of that can lead us to say, well, sure, I'm, I'm good there. I mean, I've never worshipped Baal or Allah or Moloch or Buddha or, or any of the Hindu gods. I mean, I've, I've either not worshipped any god or I've come to a Christian church and worshipped the god of that Christian church. But the command to have no other gods before me is far more than don't just worship another god. Or, or just say that the God of the Bible is my God. To have perfectly obeyed this law, I would have had to have kept God as the supreme object of my love and devotion and service every moment of every day of my life. This means that it can't be in words only. It has to be in deeds, how I've lived and what I've done. I can't just say God is number one in my life. My life has to demonstrate that with my thoughts, my attitudes, my actions, my values, my priorities, every aspect of my life. So if, if at ever a time in my life, if I have ever put my will over God's will, right? I know God said thou shalt not, but I said I really want to. And so I did. I failed to keep that standard. If at any time God said this is what you shall do, and I said I don't really want to do that today. And I didn't do it. And I failed to keep that standard. But it's not just me. It's true for you as well. If there's ever been a time in your life where you put your will over God's will, where you did what you wanted instead of what God wanted, you have fallen short of this standard. Now, if we have ever done this, we have broken God's command and we are guilty before God. And if we were to look at all Ten Commandments, we would see the standard is ridiculously high and we have all fallen short of all of God's commands over and over again. Which leads to a second question. So we know what sin is. What's the second question is, how, what do I need, why do I need to be saved from sin? Why can't I just turn over a new leaf? Why can't I just choose to be moral? Why can't I just start coming to church and change how I live? Well, since we have broken the law of God, we are guilty of sinning against God, and we've earned the wage of this sin. The wages of sin is death. But it's not just physical death, just eventually we're going to die. There is a spiritual component to the wrath of God, to the, 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 the wage of sin that comes into our life. When, jo- when the angel told Joseph Jesus would save his people from their sins, he was saying... Jesus came to save people not just from physical death, but from eternal death, from the second death. If you've ever read about in Revelation, about the period of tribulation, or you've read in Revelation about people whose names are not found in the book of life and they were cast into the lake of fire, that's the wrath of God. 
And Jesus came to save us from that. That's why we need to be saved. We need to be saved from sin because that wrath is awaiting all of us when this life is over. So the third question then, Jesus came to save us from our sin. How did He do that? Well, in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer goats as a sacrifice to God too. One was killed and his blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat in the most holy place in the temple. The other goat would be taken outside the city. The priest would lay his hands upon the goat's head and he would confess the sins of the people. And then somebody else would take the goat really far out into the wilderness where it would go and wander and, I guess, die. And this confession, it symbolically imputed the the sins of the people onto the, the goat, which was called the scapegoat. As it was led out, it was carrying the sins of the people away from them. The goat that was killed was killed because of the sins of the people, because the wages of sin is death. Now these two actions, killing one goat, taking another out into the wilderness, it taught the people three truths about sin. One, sin was serious. They, they kind of had to watch. They were supposed to bring their own animal. So imagine, you're a Jewish person on the Day of Atonement, and you take your, sin, your goat up there, and then you watch as they cut its throat, as they gut it, as they take the guts here and this there, and they do that, and they cut it all apart. And you're watching this, what you're realizing is, that's sin. My, I mean, sin, sin caused that. So you, you realize year after year, sin is serious. Sin is not a, a minor thing. It's not something to be trifled with. It, it's destructive. It teaches sin has consequences. Every year, the animal died because of sin. But the person would realize that the animal didn't die just because there was sin out in the air somewhere. The animal died because my sin, I mean, my sin killed this poor, innocent animal. And we would look at it if we were Jewish people this time and we would know that was our fault. Our sin killed it. Finally, it taught that sin required a sacrifice. The act of bleeding, killing and gutting the animal wasn't once and done. It was done year after year over and over again. Year after year, animals were killed because of the sins of the people. This was the only way their sins could be taken away. They couldn't just turn over a new leaf after they had sinned. They had to offer a goat. It couldn't just try to make personal moral reforms. I mean, it was good if they did, but that didn't change anything. They still had to offer the goat. Something still had to die. Nothing they could do would make up for their sin. And this this action was repeated year after year for hundreds of years. And there was a problem with it, though. It never actually took away the sins of the people. Instead, all it did was roll them back year after year. It never paid the penalty. Hebrews 10.4 tells us that's because the blood of an animal cannot pay the debt a human sin earns. And so what the sacrifice did every year was reminded them of their sin, its severity, and the consequences. But it also pointed them to the fact that a better sacrifice was needed. Wouldn't it be great if there was one sacrifice that was made and it was the sacrifice that took care of this stuff forever? Well, now we're getting to the point of Easter and why Jesus came. Jesus came not, not to just be the baby in the manger at Christmas time. Jesus came to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Turn to Matthew 27, 45.
Matthew 27, 45 says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when those who were standing there, when they heard it, they said, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. But when the, re- but the rest of them said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. Now the old, the temple of, the bell of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many of the bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. They entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now as for the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the other things that were happening, they became extremely frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Chapters leading up to this, the last two chapters, have dealt with the death of Jesus, the punishment he endured, the the suffering he died. But all of that suffering, it had a purpose. right? Jesus wasn't just a guy who made the wrong people angry. Jesus wasn't just a martyr for the cause. He was not any of those things, in fact. Jesus was, as John the Baptist, or John the Baptist would say, he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. All of the Old Testament sacrificial system was reminding them that something better was needed, and Jesus was the something better that was needed. On the cross, Jesus took our sin and paid our debt and cried out, It is finished. This is what he accomplished on the cross. This is what his death and resurrection did. He took all of our punishment for all of our sin. And after he had absorbed all the wrath of God against all of our sin, he cried out, it is finished. He gave up his spirit and he died. Through his death, Jesus did something no animal sacrifice could do, no Old Testament sacrifice could do. He took our sin away. Now, Of course, when we look at the cross, when we think of the death of Jesus, it teaches us things just as the Old Testament sacrifices taught them something. It teaches our our sin is serious. If we had time to read all that Jesus endured in in Matthew 26, 67 through 27, 54, it would graphically demonstrate the seriousness of sin. Sin's not a minor thing. Sin isn't something to be trifled with. Sin isn't okay. Sin is destructive. As we look at the cross and we see all Jesus endured, we realize our sin has consequences. Jesus died because of sin. But it wasn't just sin out there somewhere, and it wasn't even His sin. He had none. He died because of our sin. What Jesus endured on the cross, He endured in our place. When we read the Gospel accounts of Jesus' death and His sacrifice, we should, in the back of our minds, in the front of our minds, say, that was my fault. That was done for me. My sin killed Jesus. Your sin killed Jesus. But it also teaches us the great truth. Sacrifice has been made for sin. Jesus' death on the cross is good for all times. It will not be repeated. Nothing else will be asked for. Jesus has made the one sacrifice for sins for all times. That's a great thing. It is once and done. Never to be repeated. But there is a... I guess another side of this, there's, that's encouraging. I don't have to make a sacrifice for my sins. I don't have to atone for my sins. Jesus has atoned for them. But, and this is the key point, Jesus has atoned for my sins. Nothing else will. 
Nothing I can do will ever atone for my sins, no matter how good I am, how moral I am, how much I love people, how generous I am, how kind I am. I cannot atone for the least of my sins. Neither can you. There is only one payment, one atonement that can be made, and it is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It is the only sacrifice God will ask for, and it is the only sacrifice God will accept. And what this teaches us is we can't turn over a new leaf. We must embrace Jesus. We can't make moral reforms. We must embrace Jesus. We can't just try harder. We must embrace Jesus. We can't even be more religious. We must embrace Jesus. And the way we know that what Jesus did was for our sins, the way we know that what Jesus did was right and true and that He really was the Son of God, is that He rose from the dead. Look at chapter 28, Matthew. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the tomb. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And His appearance was like lightning and His clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Jesus has done what no one else ever did. He raised from the dead. Romans 1 and 4 says, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. His Resurrection is the proof he is the Son of God and not just a guy. He was the sacrifice for sins and not a martyr for the cause. And now because of his death and his resurrection, he offers salvation for all who would come to him by faith. And this is where we get to the point of why is Jesus so important? It's because Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus died for us, taking the consequences of our sin. In doing this, He made salvation possible for all who would repent and all who would believe. In this salvation, our sins are forgiven and taken away. To such an extent, God never brings them up again. The Bible talks about them being cast into the sea as far as the east is from the west. God remembering them no more. How far are our sins away from us that an omniscient God remembers them no more? This is what salvation does. We're adopted as children of God. We're not rebels against God anymore. Now we have been adopted into His family. We are the dearly loved children of God. We're given the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to empower us. We're given unlimited access to God in prayer. We can spend time with Him and talk to Him. He hears our prayers. He cares about what's going on in our life. We have a hope so great the trials of this life cannot compare to it and, and so much more. Now, these aren't things that you can do for yourself. These aren't things that I can do for myself. Only Jesus can do these things. I focused on Jesus today and, and as much as I can only on Jesus because Jesus is the key to it all. To paraphrase author C.S. Lewis, if Jesus is not who God's Word says He is. If He did not do what God's Word says He did, then Jesus is of no importance whatsoever. But, if Jesus is who God's Word says He is, 
And if he did the things God's word says he did, then he is of ultimate importance. The only thing Jesus cannot be is moderately important. So whatever else we have issues with, with Christianity, with the Bible, with anything else, everything has to come back to Jesus. He is the most important. So the question for us today is, what are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with the one who died for our sins and rose again? Now, what I want you to do, what I told you I was going to call on you to make a decision. I want you to understand what the decision is not. My de- what I'm calling on you to do today is not try harder. Be more moral. Turn over a new leaf. Not even be more religious. None of those things will help. None of those things will give you what you need. What I'm urging you to do today is come to Jesus, believing He died for your sins and rose from the dead. Belief in Jesus is the absolute key to everything. right? And it's a the, the faith, the belief that we have that saves, that gives us all of the benefits of what Jesus did, it's a very narrow belief. But it's not enough to say, I believe in God. Belief in a God out there somewhere is not a saving faith. It, it does not help. Saying, well, I believe there was a guy named Jesus who lived. That's not even enough. The belief that we have to have that, that brings us into the saving faith of Christ, it is believing that, that what Jesus did on the cross, that He really did die on the cross, He really did rise from the dead, and that what He did is the only hope for my salvation. Not my good works, not my personal morality, not any reforms I can make. But my salvation is wholly based upon the one who died for me and rose again. Believing on Jesus it involves the heart, the mind, and the will. The mind, you understand. I've tried to be clear, to give it in an understandable way today. The mind says, I understand Jesus died. Because my sin is serious. Jesus died as part of the consequence for my sin. Jesus died in my place. The heart wants what Jesus died to provide. The heart says, I would like to have my sins taken away. I would like to know God. I would like to have a relationship with Him. But the will, the will makes the final and lasting decision. The mind can accept the truth. The heart can want the truth. But the will has to reach out and take hold of Jesus. The will has to reach out and grab Him and hold on to Him. And in taking hold of Jesus, we have to let go of some things. We have to let go of self-righteousness. right? I I can't hold on to the fact I'm going to save myself and I've added to my salvation and I'm a pretty good old boy and I'm, I'm not that bad and take hold of Jesus at the same time. I have to let go and grab on. I, 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 can't take, I can't hold on to my self-sufficiency. I'll square myself away. I'll turn myself around. I'll, I'm going to start doing better. I have to let go of those things and grab on to Jesus. It is, and it's an intentional decision. I mean, it is intentionally letting go of one thing, grabbing on to another. And it is a decision that, that you and I, as individuals, we all have to make. 
No one can make this decision for you. And no one can make this decision for me. My parents urged me to come to Jesus and be saved as far back as I could remember. But I was 19 before I was saved. Their prayers, their urging, their telling me didn't save me. I had to reach out and take hold of Jesus on my own. So today, what I'm going to call on you to do is reach out and take hold of Jesus. Cry out to Jesus to save you. Now, maybe you're saved. You say, I'm saved, but I've fallen back. Here's the good news. What Jesus has done on the cross, it covers you now as well. What you need to do, though, is you also need to reach out and take hold of Jesus. You need to let Him draw you back and draw you in closer to where you're supposed to be. He's calling to you this morning. Or maybe you're here and you say, well, I am a Christian. I am devoted to Jesus. But still reach out. There's always more. There's always a closer relationship with Jesus. There's, there's always more of Him to know. This morning, Jesus is calling all of us to come to Him. He's calling us to come to Him for salvation. He's calling us to come to Him and recommit our lives to Him. He's calling us to come Him and know Him deeper and more intimately than we ever had before. What are you going to do with Jesus this morning? I want you to stand with your heads bowed and with your eyes closed. If you're here today and you know you need the salvation Jesus offers, you're ready to surrender to Him as Savior and Lord, I want you to raise your hand. Now the raising of the hand doesn't save, but the raising of the hand is an act of obedience just to say, Jesus, reach out and take hold of my hand and draw me to You. See those hands. If you say, I want to draw closer to Jesus, I just want I want more of Him than I've ever had before, raise your hand. If you say, I, I just need to recommit my life to Jesus. I've strayed, but oh, He loves me and He's calling me back and I'm going to recommit myself to Him. Raise your hand. I'm going to pray. The altars will be open if you want to come to the altars to pray. You can pray where you are. Jesus is no closer to you at the altar than He is where you are. The important thing is that you deal with Jesus this morning. You cry out to Him. What you've raised your hand about, you cry out to Him about that in this time. Father, we love You. We thank You for Your grace and goodness. We thank You for Jesus and what He's done. Father, have Your way in our hearts and lives today. For those who have raised their hands to be saved. Father, grant them and grab them and pull them close to You. Wash them and cleanse them and make them to know that Your Spirit is within them, that their sins are taken away and they are Your creations. For those, for those that have recommitted their lives to Christ, make them, Father, just to see that like the prodigal son, that they are returning and, and You're rushing to them. You're grabbing hold of them. You're glad to see them. For those who want deeper and more with You, just draw, draw us all closer. Father, there's more of Jesus to have. There's more of Jesus to know. Father, we want the more. We want the more. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Right, the altars are open if you want to.